We began a new series a few weeks ago. It's called Find Your Voice. We are talking about uh, current cultural issues um, because I felt a burden as a pastor, as your pastor, I felt a burden to admit that we have not done a great job um, of, of finding our voice as a church with these issues that are going on in the culture. So this is my way of humbly saying, hey, let's learn together how we talk about the biggest things that are being talked about in our world. This is not at all me saying, after years of research, I want everyone to know what to think about these things. Uh, no, this is the opposite. This is our way of saying, let's start finding out how we honor the Lord with our voices on these cultural topics. So we've spent <clears throat> two weeks going on three on the topic of Islam and terror. The uh, topic is, how do we discuss Islam with grace and truth? We're admitting we can do a better job with the grace and a better job with the truth as we talk about that topic. Um, we're moving on next week to God and government, uh, which isn't going to be awkward at all. In fact, raise up your hand if you're voting for, just kidding. <laughs> How weird would that be? <laughs> God and government, we're going to do a few weeks on God and government. How do we talk about God and government with grace and truth? We'll spend a few weeks on the sanctity of life, abortion, pro-life, pro-choice. We'll spend some time on gay marriage and the LGBT movement, um, racism and violence. So uh, we're going there as a church um, and the reason is because we want to do better at expressing ourselves for the Lord. So all of the sermons in this series, just so everyone knows, are going to be rated like PG-13, maybe up. So, you know, if you have kids who could be in the kids' ministry, they probably should be. That's your call as a parent. But there's going to be mature content in some way, shape, or form when you talk about all these issues. And, and that's, uh, that goes for today as well. So we're talking about Islam with grace and truth, part three. Go online and get parts two and one if you missed it, because what I'm summarizing here, you might be like, well, I wish you had said that with a little more sensitivity. Yeah, well, we may have spent 20 minutes on the topic last week. So go online and catch the first two parts, and this is part three. Um, I'm really excited talking about Islam. I'm excited growing in our uh, outreach to them. I've been around Muslims all my life. Uh, I grew up in Palos Hills. We had Muslims who lived on our street, several Muslim families. Uh, so from as, as, as young as I can remember, you know, uh, we were always around them. Uh, as I grew up, I would, I would always be playing basketball in my driveway with some Muslim kids from down the street, you know, which was pretty cool because I learned all the swear words in Arabic and my parents didn't know what I was saying, you know. I mean, we were rowdy kids playing outside, you know, and here we were just getting along. They were in my classes at school. I got to know them at, all the way up through high school. Um, so I had a Muslim babysitter when I was a kid. Her name was Manel. She's one of the funniest women I know. Uh, her sister was Lena. Her brother was Sultan. So we just, they've always just been in my life. So I have a heart for Muslims. Um, and I feel like it's a great opportunity when I look around. I, I look around and I see a great opportunity to reach our Muslim neighbors with the gospel in our community. And I think we could be doing a better job and we have to be doing a better job. It is an opportunity. I was at Starbucks a few years ago preparing for a sermon with my Bible open, and my Muslim babysitter, Manel, showed up at the Starbucks with her daughter, Noura, and she walked up to me, and she was like, Ryan, it's good to see you. She gave me a big hug. Her poor daughter was just standing there, a teenage daughter, like, Mom, stop embarrassing me, you know. Uh, and she said, she said, what are you doing? She said, oh, you're reading the Bible. You're getting ready for your sermon. She said, Ryan, 
my daughter is going to a Catholic college now and she's learning about the Trinity. What is the Trinity? I was like, well, have a seat. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Let's talk about the Trinity. What an awesome opportunity. And we will have, time and time again, we will have open doors to share our faith with people. And they're curious. They love to talk. They love to debate. They're very social. And I love that. Um, Not everybody sees this as a great opportunity. We also have to combat the racism and the hatred that many Muslims are experiencing in our neighborhoods. Um, I was at Waldo Cooney's Pizza on 111th Street, great pizza place, walking in to get my lunch. And there was a guy sitting out at the picnic table and he saw a Muslim woman walking into Walgreens and he yelled out to her, what are you going to blow up next, you terrorist? So I looked at him and I'm like, hey, shut your mouth, right? And he looks at me and and he used potty words. Can't repeat what he said to me. But I said, hey, God's going to judge you for every word that comes out of your mouth. You need to get out of here. He left. All right, what does that feel like? You honestly don't know, but they do. And heaven forbid we should allow racism and hatred and anger into the church so that they hear it from you. How sinful that would be. So we have to find our voice because they, Muslims need to know that we love them, we care about them, and we want to get to know them better. And they need to know that we don't hate them and we don't discriminate against them. So that's why we're learning. We're learning. We're learning how not to bash their religion but to share our faith effectively. We're learning how not to retreat to ignorance or a sentimental denial of what their faith teaches. We're learning how to share the truth and we're learning how to show the love of Christ. We're going to pray, and then we'll get into the truth about this together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a tremendous mission field right outside our front doors. Help us, O Lord, to be filled with the love of Christ. Help us to fill our world with the love of Christ. And may lives be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, The way that I structured this sermon is if I had to pick four things that could become conversation killers... um, Things that you have to be ready for. If you're not ready for it, the conversation will end up going nowhere. That's the structure of the sermon today. We're going to learn how to talk to Muslims, and we're going to learn how to talk about Muslims. Both of those are important topics. Here's the first one I think we've got to cover. It's a review, but write this down. What do I say when people claim we worship the same God? Well, you know what? Muslims and Christians worship the same God. That's a conversation killer. Why? Because if it's true, you have really no reason to share your faith with them. Okay? Because they already have what you have. So if you believe that's true, that, well, we worship the same God, you will not share your faith with them. So if it's true, we shouldn't reach out to them with the truth. If it's false, we should. Let's review. uh, And part of the reason why this is a tough topic is because Christians are saying this. Well, we worship the same God. Um, maybe you heard this story of Larissa Hawkins. She was a, was a professor at Wheaton College. She got in trouble because she um, posted a picture of herself in the uh, Muslim hijab, the scarf, online, and she wrote this on Facebook. I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. So you have a Christian professor at a Christian college saying, we worship the same God, we're of the same book. Here's the problem. Um, You have a person who is really trying to represent the love of God, knowing that there's a glaring deficiency, but she's willing to misrepresent the truth of God. Okay, She's misrepresenting the truth of God in, uh, in hopes of trying to show the love of God. 
The truth is that Muslims and Christians do not abide by the same book, follow the same messenger, or worship the same God. How do I know that? Well, Christianity came first. 600 years after Christianity, um, Muhammad came along and changed everything about our faith. He started with our book, and he changed everything. So if I were to share with you what we believe, it's up to the Muslims if they do worship our same God or if they don't. And what we find is they don't. They have rejected every central core doctrine um, that we have about salvation in Christ and God. Here's a review. You can jot this down. Um, The Messiah, we believe, is greater than all messengers. If you were to ask a Muslim if they believe that, they would say absolutely not. That's what we believe. The Messiah is greater than all messengers. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the divine Son of God. He is the full and final revelation of God to humanity. That's what we believe. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God to humanity. So 600 years after Christ came and died on the cross, 600 miles away from where it happened, a man stood up and said, that's not true. And we basically have to say that if they disregard the teachings of Christ, then they don't worship the same God. They don't believe what we believe. They have rejected that. Um, We saw last week in detail, go listen to that sermon if you haven't listened to it, that the founder of Islam lived by a very different moral code. Our Messiah proved sinless and divine. Seven trials he was put through in the week leading up to his death. They found nothing on our Messiah. He was sinless. Not so when it comes to the founder of Islam. He was violent. He enslaved women and children. He had 13 wives. He instituted the death penalty for converting to another faith. The first biographer and the most reliable biographer a hundred years after Muhammad's life admitted in the intro of his book that he had to edit things out because things in the life of Muhammad were so offensive to him. The story had to be edited by their own historians because his life was filled with sin. So our Messiah is greater than all messengers and Islam rejects that. Next, write this down. The Bible is the voice of God to humanity. The Bible is the voice of God to humanity. Um, Muslims reject that. They don't reject it necessarily because of the Quran. The Quran actually upholds and supports the scripture. It's because of the Hadith and the early church teachings um, that began to reject and call into question the reliability of the scripture. But the truth is the consensus in the Muslim world is that the Bible is not reliable. Um, We believe the Bible is the voice of God to humanity. We learned last week the Quran is a different book. It was compiled by force. It was contested by those closest to Muhammad. It was inspired in a spiritually oppressive and erratic manner, and it draws from sources that lack credibility. It's a very different book. And what we learned last week was all of this information comes from the Quran itself and from the early church traditions, the Hadith of the Muslim faith. I'm not making things up. I'm not sharing opinions. These are uh, facts of how the book was put together. Okay, so it's a different book. And... um, Muslims reject our book as the reliable uh, testimony of the Lord. Next, sin, we would believe, demands a Savior. Sin demands a Savior. Um, 
Islam handles sin in a different way. They think that you can, uh, the way to respond to your sin is to pray, to recite the Quran, um, to follow the pillars of Islam, and to work, work, work your way into Allah's favor. The problem is they don't even think at the end on judgment day that all of your effort has to even count. Allah can simply deny you for any reason and you won't go to heaven. He can accept you for any reason. It's a very arbitrary standard of judgment. So they work and they work and they work. It's a do-it-yourself faith. And in the end, there's no guarantee. No Muslim leaves this world with a guarantee that they're going to heaven. They have no promise of that. That's different than what we believe. We believe that we need a savior. We can't do it. Someone needs to rescue us from our sins. It's different. And um, we also believe that God is relational, but Allah is very far removed. You can write that down. Uh, The Muslims boast in God's greatness, and Islam teaches that God is so great that he will never reveal himself to you. You can hear his will. You will never see uh, him. You will never encounter him. He will never reveal himself um, in any way to you. He lives behind a veil. God is too great. God was not found in Eden in the Quran. God will not be found in paradise um, throughout all of eternity. He is not there. He's absent, and he has never come down into this world to do anything to help us with our sin problem. That is Allah. He's very different from our God. Our God from the beginning has been inserting himself into history, and the whole point of the Bible is God getting us back into a personal relationship with him. Um, The Quran teaches of a different God, a different plan for sin, It comes from a different book, and their messenger is very different from ours. So please understand that when people claim that we worship the same God, you have to respectfully say that's simply not true. And if you lay out some of the core tenets of the Christian faith and ask if this is what Islam teaches, it obviously will not be. So we simply don't believe the same thing. Um, And I have a heart for college students and those who are being raised up in this generation because what you're being told is you're being told that all religions basically teach the same thing. Okay, here's the problem. All Muslims believe Jesus didn't die on the cross. It's a universally agreed upon truth in their faith. Jesus didn't die on the cross. We believe he did. Can both of those things be true at the same time? No. It's so irrational to say, sure, Jesus did die on the cross and he didn't die on the cross. Both of those things can be true. That's irrational. They can't be true at the same time, okay? And they're not the same. Believing that Jesus didn't die on the cross loses you everything that God has provided in his son. So they can't both be true, and they're not the same. You have to concede that. What that means is that Muslims are our mission field. We have a truth found in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that they reject. They need a divine savior from above. They don't have one, which is why they work and they work and they work and they leave this world with no certainty of heaven. You have to decide in your own heart that your Muslim neighbors desperately need to hear about Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, you won't share the truth with them. They do need it. And the good news is they love to talk. They love to debate. They love hospitality. And frankly, you are their mission field. I mean, they sincerely believe that if they can show you that Islam is the way, that they're helping you find the truth about God. They really think your book has been changed and tampered with. They want to help you with that. All right? So most Muslims who you talk to, um, they are out to show you that God has revealed the truth to them. They want you to embrace it too. Um, Muslims are ashamed of so many sins that Americans celebrate. You have a lot, you have several moral convictions in common with them. 
All right? So most of these Muslims who follow the way of Islam, uh, they worship a god. And they do it because they want to live a good life. And they value community. If you invited them over for a meal, they would come. Uh, So please understand that we do worship a different God, but we have to learn that we can reach out and speak respectfully to Muslims of the truth of Christ, even though they follow a different messenger. That's our hope and that's our goal. So what do we say when people claim we worship the same God? We respectfully disagree. We disagree on most of the major tenets of the faith, but we can still love each other. We can still be neighborly and we can have really good conversations about these things. If you have a chance to talk to a Muslim friend or neighbor, hey, don't just shoot the truth at him. Well, you know what? I heard that Muhammad... I mean, ask a lot of questions, you know? How'd you, tell me about your background. Tell me about your faith. Tell me about your family. I don't know much about the Quran. Tell me, I mean, just ask, 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 ask. Okay, don't pull out the bazooka of truth and be like, I'm going to shoot everything I know about Christianity at you. Um, don't be weird. So what do I say when people claim we worship the same God? We covered that. Number two, you have to be ready to talk about terrorism. What do I say when terror comes up? Write that down. Uh, Maybe maybe when you're talking about Islam or about Muslims to friends at work, terrorism is going to come up. Maybe when you're talking to a Muslim and you start sharing faith, they might feel defensive, terrorism will come up. If it's a conversation stopper and you don't know what to say when terrorism comes up, it's unfortunate because you can waste an opportunity if you don't know how to talk about it. And what I would say is this. If you want to be able to talk effectively about terrorism, two things have to happen. You have to understand why it's happening and you have to understand how God wants you to respond to it. If you don't understand why terrorism is happening, you're going to sit in ignorance or you're going to deny the truth and that won't help. If you don't understand how God wants you to respond to it, you might be spot on with why terrorism is happening, but you might be way off with how God wants you to respond to it. Let's talk first about why terrorism is happening. I hope when you hear of the next story, I hope when you hear of innocent people being wiped off the face of the earth in the name of Allah that you are outraged. I hope you are outraged. I hope you are heartbroken. I hope you are saddened. And while you might want to get to the point where you talk about the innocent Muslims who had nothing to do with it, first mourn the tragedy of what a religious system is bringing into this world. Don't skip past that. Don't look away from that. Admit the truth of what's going on. If you look just at a recent list of terror attacks that have happened, going back to September 11th of 2001 was, of course, the moment where everyone remembers where you were when that happened. When Muslim terrorists, in the name of their God, flew these planes into the trade centers, killing many. And the world was brought to a screeching halt. Instantly, some Muslims said, well, those terrorists hijacked Islam, too. They don't represent our faith. They are uh, radical. They are out there. They are not following the original, central form of our faith. Is that true? Well, we'll see in a bit. But terrorism keeps happening. Even more recently, November 5th, 2009, at Fort Hood, Major Hassan shot up a military base and murdered 14 people. Um, Prior to the attack, he shouted, Allahu Akbar. He joined ISIS. He did it in the name of his God. The Boston Marathon bombings happened April 15th, 2013. Tamerlan and Johar Sanayev set off two bombs at the marathon, killing three and injuring over 260 people. 
they were self-radicalized through online jihadist propaganda. If you look into the propaganda, how are these people being recruited into terrorism? They are being brought back to their founder and their foundational principles. They're brought back to the history of the faith. Listen, this is the Islamic Reformation. Okay, they are throwing off the governments that are moderate. They are fighting against the governments that are walking away from their violent traditions. And they are calling these young people back. Back to what? Back to the original form of Islam. They're getting these um, young followers to look back to the Quran and back to Muhammad. And that's all it takes to inspire them. This is producing lone wolf attacks, like in Oklahoma, September 24th, when Alton Nolan, who's a convert, went to work, beheaded a woman, Colleen Huff, at Vaughn Foods Plant, stabbed and injured another person before he was stopped. This came from his uh, understanding of his faith. In Paris, France, January 7th, 2015, two Islamic terrorists murdered 12 people at the offices of Charlie Hebdo, a satirical French magazine that had published cartoons mocking Mohammed. Al-Qaeda took uh, credit for that attack. Um, what about in Paris on November 13th, 2015, when ISIS launched a massive coordinated terror attack in the city, resulting in at least 129 dead, 352 people injured? Where is this violence coming from? Then another smaller operation, San Bernardino, California, December 14th, 2015, two radical Islamists shot and murdered 14 people at their company Christmas party. 22 others were injured. Where is this violence coming from? Why are these people doing it? Brussels, Belgium, March 22nd of this year, ISIS set off bombs at the airport, killed 30 people. Orlando earlier this year, June 12th, 49, were killed by a man who pledged his allegiance to ISIS. It was the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. And then July 14th, Nice, France, 86, were uh, run over by a truck as men shouted out, Allahu Akbar, 86 dead, 434 injured as they went on a mile-long rampage. Why are they doing it? Where is the violence coming from? If we don't understand where it's coming from, we won't be able to deal with the source. And here's the truth. The call to violence is coming from the founder and the core teachings of this faith. You can write this down. Violence is built into the founder and the foundations of Islam. This is the truth that we have to face. The problem of violence is located in the heart of the founder and the heart of their teachings. In the Quran, chapter 9, verse 5, we find what, what is the great commission of Islam. Um, the way that revelation worked is when Muhammad would get a revelation, whatever he got then became supreme over every previous thing he said or heard. So the scholars agree that chapter 9 is the last chapter to be revealed to him, and therefore it's the greatest and the most authoritative. What did he say in chapter 9 in this great commission to, to uh, those who would follow him? He said this, Slay the unbelievers wherever you discover them and capture them and corner them and lay every kind of ambush for them. It's a call to violence. Chapter 9, verse 29 to 30, he says, War on against such of those to whom the scripture has been handed down as do not believe in one God. The Christians blaspheme. The Messiah is the Son of God. God curse them. The great commission of Islam is to wage war on the Jews and the Christians and everyone who does not agree with their faith. Um, we have to understand that this is where the violence is coming from. Uh, those who are recruiting people to these terrorist networks are pointing them straight to their book and straight to their founder. They don't need any other propaganda. 
That's all it's taking. Well, that raises a question because many who are peaceful followers, uh, peaceful practicers of Islam would say, well, okay, you need to understand the context of those verses that was in no way meant to continue past that, you know, incident in in, uh, the area there. And so jihad is a spiritual thing and, and Islam is a religion of peace. All right. Is that historically what we see? Did early Muslims take Muhammad's words and say, well, you know what? He only meant that for that time and place, so we're not going to you know, take that as our marching orders to the world. No, they did not. They followed his advice and his example, and um, Islam has been spreading by the tip of the sword for 1,400 years. You can write this down. Violence has been central to Islam for 1,400 years. This is the way that Islam has spread. This is the way they treated those who disagree with their faith. Um, We've got a video here I'm going to show you that just is a historical rendering of um, from the moment Muhammad passed away, how Islam spread uh, up to the Crusades. We're just going to stop it when the Crusades are over. Every dot you see on this video represents another battle. So that's what those are. Go ahead and show the video. And here it starts. Islam burst out of the Arabian Peninsula and immediately starts attacking the Middle East. And notice that it doesn't take long until they're crossing the Mediterranean and attacking southern France and Spain. Notice something here. Most people think of Islam, they think of Arabs, they think of Arabs, they think of desert. And yet here we see that Islam is projecting power throughout the Mediterranean. Notice how the little islands of the Mediterranean are getting hammered. The navy of Islam would attack coastal towns, kill, rob, rape, and then take slaves. So this whole battle map as it unfolds, you're seeing slaves being taken. Over a million slaves were taken out of Europe into the Islamic world. That's something you don't think about much, but it's absolutely true. There were over 200 battles fought in Spain alone. And we also see, however, on the... So we stopped it right there where the Crusades ended. Um, What does that show us? That shows us that violence has been central to Islam for 1,400 years. Jihad fills the pages of Islamic history from its beginning, and um, the pages are filled with the blood of of innocent people who were conquered. Um, What are we to do with that? Well, we have to admit the truth, that when someone says Islam is a religion of peace, we have to admit that historically that was only true for the first 13 years when Muhammad didn't have an army. From that point on, there has been 1,400 years of holy war. We have to admit the truth. That is the truth. We're not making it up. History is filled with the violent expansion um, of Islam. It's been central from the beginning. Uh, Violence is installed on the hard drive, the hardware of Islam, and you can't remove it without removing the founder and the foundation, which is why it's here to stay. It's a fact. You have to admit that that's true. Um, So violence is built into the founder and the foundations of Islam. Violence has been central to Islam for 1,400 years. But please understand this. Write this down. Most Muslims are peaceful and oppose violence. Now here's the question, now that we understand where the violence is coming from, how do we respond to it? Yes, we should be outraged when we see innocent people suffering, but how are we supposed to respond to it? We're supposed to respond to it with the love of Christ. We're not supposed to become racist, accusing all Muslims of being terrorists. We're definitely not supposed to become violent, repaying sinful violence with sinful violence. For the first 300 years of the church history, we were, we were a 
exclusively nonviolent movement. We were tortured for our faith. We were thrown to the lions. We, we didn't fight back. We didn't have an army. We didn't pick up swords. We were a nonviolent movement. And we respond to persecution by loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. That's our response. Okay? Um, you have to understand that most Muslims are not enabling terrorism. Don't get suspicious about that. And we can talk frankly about the teachings of Islam, but we always need to speak with love about the followers of Islam because the followers of Islam deserve our love and they deserve to hear the truth of the gospel. Um, I'll never forget when I interviewed a, an imam at um, the Bridgeview Mosque as I was working through my master's degree. And we talked about a lot of things, but at one point 9-11 came up. I said, well, what happened after 9-11? And uh, there, were, there were about 300 people veterans and teenagers who met in a park in Oak Lawn and marched toward the mosque intending to do who knows what. A hundred cops had to show up to stop them. Violence against violence. And these were innocent people who had nothing to do uh, with what was going on. And, and here I was talking to this man and I said, well, you know, what happened? And he said, you know what? It was really great. He said, our women couldn't go out and shop because they were so afraid. And he said, there were Christian women who came and they shopped for our women. And we'll never forget that. And I thought, how awesome is that? Reaching out with the love of Christ to those people who are afraid, they're ashamed of their faith and what people are doing in the name of their God, and, and they're unsettled with what's happening in the world. What a perfect time to show them the love of the gospel. So we need to understand the source of the violence, and we need to understand what God expects you to do in response to it. We're not to choose anger. We're not to choose pride. We're not to choose racism. We're to choose love. That is God's plan. So what do we say when people claim we worship the same God? Are you ready for that conversation? What do we say when terror comes up? Are you ready to talk about that? Instantly when the topic of terror comes up, someone, whether, whether it's a Muslim, whether it's an atheist, whether it's an agnostic, if you start talking about violence in Islam, what, what's going to come up? Well, what about the violence in the Christian church? What about the violence in your history? If you're not ready to talk about that topic, it's going to kill the conversation right there. So write this down. What do I say when Christian violence comes up? Um, President Obama got into trouble when he mentioned this at a prayer breakfast to Christians. Um, his quote was this. Unless we get on our high horse and think this is unique to some other place, remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. In our home country, slavery and Jim Crow all too often was justified in the name of Christ. In other words, who are you to talk? Christians are just as violent. Um, what's trying to be established here is you guys are just as sinful and violent, so you have no business talking to other people about their faith. Keep your faith to yourself. You deal with your own problems in your faith and let them deal with the problems in their faith. It also insinuates that most Muslims would disagree with the call to violence, and then there's some extremists who pursue that path, just like most Christians have been nonviolent, and some extremists have pursued the other path. There's, there's this equivocation going on. Now, at this point, all we have to do is first look to our founder and our book and say, well, what did our founder and our book say about violence? Proverbs 6, 16 to 17 says this, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And then it goes on to list other things. Listen, how does our God feel about sinful violence? He hates it. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He condemns anyone who sheds innocent blood with their hands. 
that's a very different opinion on violence than Allah. Our God condemns hands that shed innocent blood. In Revelation 21.8, it shows that there is no promised reward for those who are violent without cause. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, adulterers, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. How will God treat people who have been violent, even violent in his name? He will throw them in hell forever. Our God will punish those who are wickedly violent. doesn't matter if they do their violence in the name of Christ or in the name of the church. They're going to hell. Our God does not promise a reward for those who are violent towards the world or towards those within the church. In Matthew 26, 52, Jesus himself said this, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. What had happened was Jesus was about to be hauled off and thrown on a cross. Peter drew his sword and chopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus said, put your sword back, healed the ear of the high priest and told his disciples that this will not be a violent movement. And it wasn't. The Christian church was a nonviolent movement. Now that alone, a look to our book and our founder, settles the matter. Listen, I know some of the followers of Christianity have been violent, but they turn away from the teachings and the example of our Messiah to do it. God will condemn them. He will judge their wicked violence. That's the end of the story. All right. But I do feel like it's fair for us to answer for what followers of Christ have done. The violence that followers of Christ have brought into history, I think it's fair to give an answer for that. Even though we're measured by our founder and our foundational documents, sure, let's give an answer for what we see in church history. Jot this down. What about the Crusades? What do I say when the Crusades come up? I think that's a good opportunity to be honest about the violence that came from the the church in the world. The church has done terrible things. It has. We can insist that the Crusades were a departure from the teachings of Christ. Listen, yeah, those were wicked. They were a departure from the teachings of Christ. God will not reward those men who participated in that, and he promised to judge their actions. And we can also point out that the Catholic Church at that point was drifting doctrinally, and they finally got to the point where they promised Christians, if you go on the holy war, you're guaranteed to get into paradise. You won't find that doctrine in Scripture. So it was a drift from the example and teachings of our Messiah, and it was a drift doctrinally. There's no promise for an entrance into heaven from a holy war. We can apologize for that and say, listen, that's so out of line with our Messiah, his teachings, and what we know about salvation. It was a big mistake. Yet, at the same time, we can offer some facts that shed light on what was going on there. The Crusades happened a thousand years after Christ. Listen, it took a thousand years for the church to get to the point where it had departed so far that it was called out on a holy, violent war. A thousand years it took to get to that point. Islam was there day one. That's different. It's one thing to say this is a departure from the faith. It's another thing to say it is the faith. And with Islam, it is the faith. Holy war is the faith. To demonstrate that it took a thousand years for the church to get to the point where it went on the crusades shows you something. They also only lasted a couple hundred years. It doesn't make it right. It just makes it unusual. 
To be able to say that there hasn't been holy wars for 800 years is saying something. The Muslims can't say that. Check out, uh, here's a video that shows the Crusades, the battles and the duration. The Crusades enter into Turkey and the Middle East. Battles go on, but aren't there far fewer than you thought there might be? And here we go. The last battles are fought, and that is the end of the Crusade. I mean, do we see? Do we see the same thing on the map? We don't. We don't see the church as being this violent movement that spreads out and conquers the world and never stops. We don't see that. It's a different story in history. The violence that came forth from the church was sinful and will be judged. But when you look at history side by side, there's no comparison. Muslims had conquered two-thirds of the Christian world before the first crusade happened. Two-thirds of the Christian world. The crusades were a defensive effort. They were wrong. But you can't say, well, because the crusades happened church, same thing. Your history is the same as theirs. No, it's not. Now, what about the other violence in the Bible, like, for example, the Old Testament conquest? God commanding violence upon a certain group of people. Jot that down. What about the Old Testament conquest? First of all, this might not come up from Muslims. It might come up when you're talking about Islam to somebody who's not a believer. Well, you know, look at the Old Testament. Your God commanded violence too. You have to know that Um, There were some things that were unique to the Old Testament conquest that made it not repeatable. First of all, God gave the Canaanites 400 years to repent. Okay, that that would have been a good pattern for Islam to follow. We're going to wait 400 years before we go on jihad. Didn't do it. So 400 years to repent. This is also listed as one form of divine judgment. God brings the sword. God's judgment isn't evil. This is God doing away with evil. God has also brought a flood into the world that killed every man, woman, and child. He also, on Sodom and Gomorrah, poured a volcano out of heaven, fire and blazing rock and ash. He took out a whole city. God's judgment is terrifying. And what we learn from the Canaanite conquest is not how the Jews were supposed to spread the faith. They never were told to do it that way. Uh, And nothing about the Old Testament conquest was ever brought into the new, as if this is the way the Christian church will expand. It was never something that God uh, commanded to go beyond the original confines. It had borders, there was a duration, and it ended. So it's meant to show us to fear God's terrible judgment. It's not meant to show us how to expand the faith. So what about the Crusades? What about the Old Testament conquest? And then what about modern Christian groups? Um, what, What do we do with modern Christian groups that are violent? So the KKK claims to be a Christian group. It is, uh, it, it is claiming to restore original Protestant values to America. All right? Now, you and I could easily say, laughable, nothing about what they're doing is Christian. But listen, we can't, we can't so easily escape that. Because if we, if we could just say, nope, those people don't represent who we are. Well, you know, then those in Islam could easily say, well, the terrorists don't represent who we are. What we have to do is we have to go back to the foundational principles of our book and our founder. What we find with modern Christian violent groups, which could include the KKK, it could include anti-abortion groups that choose violence, that choose a violent response to try and stop abortion. It also includes Christian tribes in Africa who in the name of Christ conquer fellow tribes. Um, What do we say? We say that many people have picked up the sword and turn to violence in the name of Christ. But their actions violate the teachings and example of Jesus, and our God promises they will be punished, not rewarded. That makes us different. 
The Bible teaches that those who have brought violence into the church or into the world will never be rewarded by God and they are promised punishment. The Quran teaches that if Muslims don't bring violence into the world, they will be punished. And if they do, they are promised paradise. Two different views of violence spread throughout history. When Muslims choose violence, they're standing on the foundation of Islam. When Christians choose violence, they're departing from the foundations of Christ. It's not the same. So we have to understand how to talk when people accuse us of being just as violent uh, to the core, to the heart, um, as the movement of Islam. So what do I say when people claim we worship the same God? That's not true. What do I say when terror comes up? Well, be ready to talk with Muslims who share your um, outrage. Be ready to understand, though, that it comes from the foundations of their book. Be ready to talk about Christian violence and to answer for the followers in the name of Christ who did terrible things that God will bring them to judgment, but also insist that history is not the same. The church is different. Our God's view of violence is different. You can't say they're the same. And then number four, what do I say when immigration comes up? Because there are a lot more Muslims who are displaced by violence and many of them are coming here and people have strong feelings about that. What do I say when immigration comes up? How do I interact with Muslims who I find in my community, at my job, um, at my kid's school? How do I feel about that? That's an important question because if you allow yourself to get unhealthy in your mind about this, You know, if you get really super political about it, you might not talk to people around you who need to hear about the love of Christ. So when it comes to the topic of immigration, let me just challenge you. Guard your tongue. Guard what you say. Guard what you say. Be very careful not to speak in a way that reflects anger or or revenge or violence or hatred or racism. That's not God's will. Um... Sure, form your political opinions of what the U.S.'s immigration policy should be. Um, Share your thoughts on illegal immigration. But be very careful when you're talking about policies compared to when you're talking about people who are made in the image of God. God loves them. And however they get here into your neighborhood should not change the way that you treat them. There should be love and compassion and hospitality waiting at your door for everybody who is in your life. You have to be filled with love. You have to be filled with compassion. It's God's will. Hey, don't forget where we all started. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You were a foreigner to God. You had no place in His kingdom. No citizenship in his country. He had to reach out because you were a refugee spiritually wandering the earth, bound for hell. He reached out. He took you in. And he gave you a country, an eternal home. How could you then so close your heart off that you can't offer common hospitality to people who desperately need what God has given to you? It's against the gospel to close your heart to anybody. Don't be racist. Don't be violent. Don't be hateful. Speak with love. And jot this down, guard your heart. We must not withhold the love of Christ from anyone, regardless of how they got here. Racism, elitism kills the Great Commission. The early church (coughs) in Israel was filled with racism. The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Gentiles hated the Jews. 
There was so much racism. The gospel would have stayed in Israel if Jesus hadn't broken apart those sins in the hearts of his followers. He had to give dreams and visions and all sorts of things to tell people, hey, hey, go out to the Gentiles. Go out to the Samaritans. Stop staying in your own little circle here. Jesus broke apart the barriers that divided races back then, and he's still doing it today. You have to admit that there are streaks of racism found in your heart. You have to admit that it's ungodly to hold on to those sinful feelings towards others. We have to abandon those and show true hospitality. I think we can do it. I think we can get better at being hospitable to our Muslim neighbors. You know, honestly, it starts with you just showing love to those who are already in your life. Do you have neighbors? Do you have coworkers? Have you even invited them over for a meal or to watch a game? I mean, have you done the basics? Hey, come on over. You know, do it. Invite them over. Come on over. Let's, uh, let's watch a Cubs game or something. Come on over. And then just don't be weird. Just be normal. Glad you're here. Don't pull out your sermon notes. Just be normal. Nabil Qureshi was converted out of Islam many years ago, and he said he's still trying to get his parents saved. And he said what breaks his heart the most is he grew up in this country. He had friends, right? He had, American, uh, he had uh, non-Muslim American friends, right? So he was always out there. And he said, he said, it hit me one day, my mom has never been invited into anybody's house other than her Muslim family and friends. Nobody has ever invited my mom into her house. So how do I stand up with what she views as a Western faith and tell her about the love of Christ when she's never even had a meal with anybody? I mean, do you see how the lack of hospitality works against the gospel we're sharing? We, um, we have to just have normal, loving, compassionate interactions with the Muslims who are already in our lives. That's where it all starts. And you need to understand that doing nothing isn't acceptable. The secular world has no answer to radical Islam because they aren't offering a better truth. They're silencing all discussion about truth. I'll never forget, uh, I don't remember his name, but whoever the guy is who's the lead in um, Hamilton, that musical Hamilton, he, uh, he got up after the violence in Orlando and he shared a sonnet. I think he won a Tony or something. He shared a sonnet in memorial of those who died. What is the secular world's answer to Uh, extreme violence, he says this, we live through times when hate and fear seem stronger, we rise and fall in light from dying embers, remembrances that hope and love lasts long, and love is love, 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 cannot be killed or swept aside, now fill the world with music, love, and pride. He got a standing ovation. Is that the plan? If I just say it enough, then the violence will stop and people will, stop, will start loving each other. I'm just going to say it and say it and say it. And this is what the secular world is doing. Just love each other. Just love each other. Just love each other. It's not working. He says, fill the world with music, love, and pride. Terrorists have music. They love their families. They have pride in their heritage. They don't need more of that. They lack the truth of the divine Savior from heaven. Jesus alone can empty the Muslim heart of its violent pursuit of paradise. Our world will not agree with that. And they'll just keep saying it till they're blue in the face. Just love each other. Just love each other. Just love each other. No deal. It's no deal. 
The secular world has no effective voice because they deny the problem and they don't offer a solution. You have God's Son alive in you. You are the way that your Muslim neighbors can experience a love from God that their faith will never give them. And it starts with common decency. It starts with a nice conversation. It starts with with you being you in Christ. I think we're at the beginning of learning how we can do better at showing love to our Muslim neighbors and how we can do better at sharing truth with our Muslim neighbors. There's a few ways I think you can get better at this. We're providing resources for you in our bookstore in the gym. Uh, There's four books. I would just recommend you pick up at least one of them. Nabil Qureshi wrote, No God But One. This kind of compares the differences between the faith of Islam and Christianity. Um, There's a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. This is Nabil's personal testimony of how he got saved. It takes the uh, average Muslim who who converts to Christ seven years on average, seven years. Remember, they can't leave their faith. You know that, right? They're not allowed to leave their faith. Uh, They lose everything if they leave their faith. So it's a hard thing for you to convince them to walk away. And then if you want to learn more about terrorism in particular, there's a book called Answering Jihad, A Better Way Forward. It goes into the history of terrorism and the details of that. And then Abdu Murray, who was here a few years, a few years, a few weeks ago, uh, his book, Grand Central Questions, is in the bookstore too. Pick up one of those books. In addition, we're forming a Muslim outreach team. It's going to be led um, by a man in our church who got saved many years ago, um, Omar Qureshi. Omar, you just wave your hands back there. There's Omar. Uh, and Omar is going to be at the bookstore after the service today. So if you have any questions that, wow, you know what, I'd really love to talk to somebody about this, where to get started or how to answer this question, Omar is going to be at the bookstore. Go up, you can talk to him about the faith and about outreach. For right now, I think this is overwhelming, and um, we need the Lord to lay his hand a blessing upon our efforts to be more loving um, toward our neighbors. So let's, let's all go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing upon all of this. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves. Uh, We humble ourselves and come near to you because we need to grow in love. And we need to grow in sharing the truth. So, Father, we just ask for your forgiveness, for our apathy, for our indifference. We ask for forgiveness for our anger, for the racism that lurks in our hearts, for the elitism that we allow to take root. We just pray, Lord, that you would fill us with the love of Jesus Christ. The Lord of heaven who stepped down and came into this world to save sinners like us who had waged a great rebellion against you. Show us, Lord, what it means that you welcomed us, strangers and aliens, into your kingdom and made us family forever. Show us how we can show that same family love to those who follow a different faith than us. We pray that you would do what only you can. We pray for a great awakening to the gospel in the Muslim community in our region. You can make that happen. Help us to know how we can follow your lead on that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.